John 4, 46 to 54, the word that Jesus spoke. And he came therefore again to Cana of Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And there was a certain royal official whose son was sick at Capernaum. When he heard that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee, he went to him and was requesting him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Jesus therefore said to him, Unless you people see signs and wonders, you simply will not believe. The royal official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, Go your way, your son lives. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him, and he started off. And as he was now going down, his slaves met him, saying that his son was living. So he inquired of them the hour when he began to get better. They said, therefore, to him, Yesterday at the seventh hour the fever left him. So the father knew that it was at that hour in which Jesus said to him, Your son lives. And he himself believed and his whole household. This is again a second sign that Jesus performed when he had come out of Judea into Galilee. Amen. Let's pray. Our Father, we pray that as we meditate on these words, we'll understand better about our need to believe your word, to believe everything that is written in your word. Teach us, Lord, this truth. Give us full conviction that whenever we hear it, the moment we hear it, that we believe whatever it says for the salvation of not only our souls, but for our households. We ask you, Father, to teach us to have confidence in this, your word, and not in anything else. We ask in the name of Christ. Amen. Jesus has now come into Galilee. We know that from the previous passage in verses 43 to 45. When Jesus entered Galilee, and at the beginning of the chapter, he was in Judea, passed through Samaria, and then entered into Galilee, going from south to north in the land of Israel. Well, in this journey, he has encountered a woman of Samaria, and then the town of Samaria, the town in Samaria where she lived, that many of those people came to believe, and they came to truly believe in the gospel. But then when he entered Galilee, in verses 43 to 45, we saw that it looks as though in that passage, most likely, those people did not truly believe. And that's why it says that he entered Galilee, um, where there would be much ministry there, yet the prophet would not have honor there. Jesus, as the greatest of the prophets, would not have honor there. And then when the Galileans did come to him, they came to him because of the miracles he performed, his signs, not because of the word he preached, but they came to see more miracles. They weren't interested in the truth of the word of God, the gospel. They were interested in miracles, seeing something wondrous, something stunning, something supernatural, something amazing that would be a spectacle to them. It would be like going to the movies and seeing the, the, the lights and the, the differences that the, the light shows and the things that are able to be done as a spectacle before your eyes. That's what they were interested in. However, now in 46 and following, in our passage, 
where we read about this nobleman or royal official, someone who is a court official in the court of the king or the local governor, that this official, we see an instance of him and his household in Galilee, where there was so much unbelief, we see an example of true faith. I think here we have an example of true faith. Now let's see what happens. In verse 46, He came therefore again to Cana of Galilee, where he had made the water wine. Jesus returns to this one city of Galilee. It was a small, obscure place. Remember in chapter 2, a wedding was there. Jesus, his mother, and the disciples were all invited to go there. They, the wine gave out at the wedding, so Jesus made water into wine instantly, miraculously. He provided that provision for the sake of the celebration and enjoyment at the wedding feast of Cana. Now he returns to that same place. He returns there in order for this incident to occur. And when he made water into wine instantly, it was known by those townsmen that Jesus had those abilities. It was also known by the Galileans elsewhere within that same province that Jesus had these abilities. And this is the platform or this is the backdrop uh, as to why this royal official, this nobleman, this court official would actually seek out Jesus knowing he was close in proximity to Christ. Now, this city, Capernaum, notice we have one city, small city named Cana of Galilee. Now we have Capernaum which is also in Galilee, but it's more known, it's well known, it's a bigger city. It's there on the perimeter of the Sea of Galilee. This Capernaum was where Jesus during his ministry usually resided. He usually resided in the city of Capernaum. The royal official presumably has his station there, his home there in Capernaum, and his son is there lying sick. So the difference in miles would have been about at least one day's journey from Capernaum to Cana, from Cana to Capernaum. And his residence and his son is lying sick. His son is so desperate, he's at the point of death, as it says in verse 47. He has a severe sickness. Verse 47. When he heard that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee, he went to him, and was requesting him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. This official hears that Christ is now closer to him. He's not many, many miles away. Now he's in a desperate condition. He has a sick son who is almost dying. He's almost dead, about to die. And so because Jesus is close, he actually goes to Jesus. Notice this. He is a royal official. He's a man of means. He's a man of power. He's a man of reputation. His name likely would have been known, known more than many other people, obscure people in that place. And yet he takes the initiative to travel at least 15, if not 20 or more miles from Capernaum to Cana, from a famous place to an obscure place in order to meet Christ because he was put on trial. He had a a trauma or a disaster about to happen in his own life before his very eyes. Normally, who dies first? 
fathers or sons? Usually fathers die first, not sons. And when a son dies before the father dies, then you have a big deal. You have a tragedy that's about to happen. And so you can imagine that he, this man, this father is brought very low because his son is about to die. So something unusual is happening and something unusual had to happen in this man's case for him to wake up, for him to realize the, the desperation in his own life, which is also true of many of us. Yes, it is true that some people, they come to know Christ because uh, in, in some calm and peaceful setting, perhaps in their own home, perhaps parents were teaching children and the children at a young age came to know Christ or they went to a good church and they heard the gospel and they had a conversion early in life before, that, before they were able to indulge in all of the sins of youth. Before that happened, they were converted and they were prevented from indulging and going headlong and headstrong into their sins for a few years and then convert at age 30 or 40 or 50 or something. This is something that sometimes happens. But what usually happens, it seems, the majority of times what happens is that people indulge in sin, they live a life of wickedness for a time, practicing idolatry, doing whatever they feel like doing, doing whatever they want to do, and nothing wakes them up until a tragedy happens to them, until turmoil happens to them until they have a desperate situation like this official has, that his son is about to die. Well, thankfully in his case, it prods him, it goads him, it awakens him from his sleep enough to travel this distance to meet Christ in Cana of Galilee. And it says here um, in verse 47, that he went to him and was requesting him to come down. This phraseology, was requesting him, it implies a repetition. It implies an urgency. It, it implies that he was beseeching him or urging Christ to do so. He was politely urging him. That's why it's translated was requesting him. Nevertheless, it wasn't just, please, can you come down? No, because he's dealing with desperation. He's dealing with an emergency in his own family. He traveled a great distance, great enough to go see Jesus in a small, obscure town. And it says, was requesting in the sense that he was asking and urging politely, but nevertheless, he was urging Christ to come. This is the nature of someone who understands his need for God to intervene in his life. Now, you'll also notice this phrase, to come down or to go up, to come down like this, it, as it says in verse 47. This is the case, and this is a note, a historical note, showing the accuracy of John, the apostle. The city of Cana was higher elevation. It was on higher elevation, higher on a hill or mountain, higher than the city of Capernaum. What did we say that, uh, about Capernaum? Where is it located? Near the Sea of Galilee on the perimeter, on the northern part of it. And seas typically, lakes are typically on lower elevation. 
right? So that's the idea uh, that's happening here. That's what John is conveying. That's why they say come down or go up because of Cana being higher and Capernaum being lower. But still, if you are going up and down hills and mountains, that also adds to the journey, does it not? It adds to the exhaustion of the journey, the desperation that he had to undergo in order to do that. Because it's not merely that he's in a chariot. That may, may or may not have been the case. It may be that he's just by himself or with one or two of his servants to help him on his journey. Verse 48. Jesus therefore said to him, Unless you people see signs and wonders, you simply will not believe. Jesus responds with something that sounds very harsh. It sounds severe. And in a sense, it is severe and harsh. To the normal ear, we don't want to hear this kind of thing. Remember, most likely the official is asking politely, respectfully of Christ to heal his son. Most likely he is being respectful, even though he is a royal official. Remember who is Christ? Others disdained him by saying, is this not the carpenter's son? Right? We know his family. Is this not the carpenter's son? So Jesus has a lowly occupation. This is a royal official. The royal official comes politely. He comes urgently. He comes from miles and miles away. And yet Jesus answers him like this. Why? Because at this point, he was only concerned about the physical well-being of his son and only of himself too. His, his physical comfort, the peace of mind that his son was going to be okay and live. That is his only concern. And Jesus is bringing this to the surface. He knows that being God in human flesh. Jesus knows that his only concern was the physical world for his own mind to be at peace that his son was going to live and for his son to have physical life. At this point, that was his only concern. We know that because later there is a confirmation in verse 53, he himself believed and his whole household. By that point, I believe, John the Apostle is telling us at that point, he fully comprehended and fully wanted the gospel of Christ. He wanted to have forgiveness of sins, and that's what he also taught to his household. He, was, he and his household were converted by that point. But initially, the problem was signs and wonders. Signs and wonders. They wanted to see miracles. They wanted to see supernatural events. They wanted to be dazzled. They wanted their eyes to be amazed. They wanted that kind of thing to happen. They wanted the talk of the town to be, did you see that miracle? Yes, I was there. I was that close and this is what happened. They wanted to have those kinds of things such as a theater. They wanted a show. They wanted to go to the stadium and be able to see with their very eyes the events that take place in a stadium. That's the concern of the people. Now, it says in verse 48, Jesus said to him. Now, he is the immediate recipient of these words. No, there's no doubt that he is culpable in thinking that thought, being that way, having that frame of mind. 
he was that way. But he wasn't the only one, because in your Bibles, you may have an additional word italicized there that says, you people, unless you people see. And the reason for that in your English Bibles has to do with the original language, you, which appears two times in verse 48. In the original language, the word you twice is in the plural. It's not evident in English, but in the original language, it is in the plural. So Jesus is not only chastising this royal official, but he's also chastising the people that he belongs to. That is the Jewish people. The Jewish people had this propensity. They had this penchant. They had this inclination to only want to believe or only say they believe if they saw a miracle. So they would insist on a miracle before they would believe. This is what it says in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We'll begin at verse 18. 1 Corinthians 1, 18 to 25. 1 Corinthians 1, 18. For the word of the cross is to those who are perishing foolishness. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not come to know God, God was well pleased through the foolishness of the message preached to save those who believe. For indeed, Jews ask for signs and Greeks search for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified to Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. But to those who are the called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. Because the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Jews ask for signs. We know that Jesus had to confront this repeatedly with the scribes and the Pharisees. They were demanding a sign. And Jesus said, an evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign. If we keep on asking God, expecting God, as the Jews did, and as this royal official was accustomed. He had the frame of mind to think, I need to have a sign. I want to see a miracle. And they wanted that. They didn't want truth. They didn't want the word of Christ. They wanted the miracles of Christ. They wanted the benefits of Christ. They wanted that, that which would help them in their physical world. That was their preoccupation. They had a preoccupation. They were obsessed with the physical world, not the spiritual world. If they were obsessed or dedicated to the spiritual world, they would have wanted his word. They would have considered his word to be sweet and savory, but they didn't want that, at least not at this point with this royal official. This is why he confronts it and accuses him of insisting on signs and wonders. Well, this is typical of human nature. It's typical. In the case of the Jews, they may have wanted signs and wonders 
Sometimes we Gentiles, we, we also in churches, we want signs and wonders. This is what is the craze. This is the obsession in charismatic Pentecostal kinds of churches and even in Catholic churches and sometimes also in Baptist and other kinds of churches. There is a craving for the miraculous. And if the miraculous doesn't happen, then there is no religion. If the miraculous doesn't happen, then they have no interest. If the miraculous doesn't happen, then they can't say, follow me or come to my church. Listen to me. So both pastors and ministers are doing that, but also the people are doing that. The pastors are catering to it. They want it because they want crowds following them. And then the people, they also crave for those kinds of things. This happens very commonly. This obsession with the miraculous. As though if the miraculous doesn't happen, then I'm not going to be content. I'm not going to be satisfied. I don't want to know what the Bible teaches. I don't want to know what the Bible expects of me. I don't want eternal life. I'm not thinking about eternal life. I just want the here and now. Now, on the miraculous side, certainly we have a preoccupation for that. Many, many, many churches and denominations have that. But then there's another thing that's more widespread and happens to everybody. That is, we have a preoccupation with the physical world. We want this and we want that. We want the material things of the world, the material pleasures of the world, the material, whatever the world can provide or God can provide for me in this world. And this is my reason for religion. My reason for religion, and this happens not only in Christianity, but in all religions. My reason for religion, well, what's God going to do for me? What's God going to give me? Is he going to give me a long life? Is he going to give my children a long life? Is he going to give them good jobs? Is he going to give them a good education? Is he going to provide a lot of money for them? Is he going to um, make sure that they have health and live to be 80, 90, 100 years old? Is that what's going to happen? Is he going to make sure that when they are married that they have children and that then I can have grandchildren? So on and so forth. This is the way we think, right? What kind of a house will they live in? So on. What kind of cars will they drive? Correct? This is the way we are thinking, constantly thinking about these matters because we are preoccupied with the physical world. And not just that on basic necessities, but even on the luxuries and the pleasures of the world, the things that we think we deserve. We think we deserve the things that the world provides, the material possessions, the physical possessions, the physical enjoyments of the world. We think we deserve them. And we expect God to give, the, give us those things in abundance for us to splurge, in abundance for us to indulge, in abundance for us to have whatever we want on a whim. We're no different because it's human nature. Jesus confronts that here. Unless you people see signs and wonders, you simply will not believe. Our belief should not be based on anything but the truth of the word of Christ. It should be based on that, not the insistence on miracles. We read Luke 16. What was it that the rich man did not comprehend? The rich man thought, listen, if, if, one, if someone rises from the dead and goes and preaches to my brothers, 
who are living in sin, then they will repent. And Jesus' answer was, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. If they will not listen to them, neither will they be persuaded if someone rises from the dead. If we attract people by the wrong means, that's how they will be sustained. They have to be attracted by the powerful word of Christ. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous man shall live by faith. It is the power of the word of the gospel, not ways in which we can invent to attract men to come to church. That should not happen. Verse 49. Verse 49. The royal official said to him, Sir, come down before my child dies. This is amazing. This is amazing. Remember, the carpenter's son, the carpenter's son, who lives in a, in a small, obscure town in Galilee, Galilee of the Gentiles, the carpenter's son rebukes the royal official. Normally, what would happen? The royal official would, would say, listen, I've got a sword on my, on my hip, right? I've got my, my other, uh, I have my bodyguard here. I can do whatever I want to you. Why are you talking to me that way? He could have done that. That's what we would have done. We would have said, who are you to talk to me that way? Well, who are you to speak to me that way? Can't you say it nicer? Can't you watch your, your tone? This is the language of today, right? People say, if they hear a sharp word today, they'll say, well, what, can't you watch your tone? They'll say that or something like that. But he didn't do any of that. He was humble. He was humble and teachable, but persistent. This is Jesus testing his persistence in humility. Sir, come down before my child dies. He says, sir. Sir, politely repeats his request. Politely repeats his request. Before my child dies. That should teach us a lot. We, we should have this same attitude whenever God says anything to us. Whether we're reading the Bible, whether someone's preaching the Bible to us, somebody's explaining the Bible to us, whatever it is, when the Bible's words are presented to us, we should receive them in all humility. We should have all teachability whenever the Bible is open. Have that kind of fear of God and love of the truth to listen to whatever is said, even if to our flesh, to our natural condition, if it sounds like it's something I want to resist and complain, kick and scream against it. We shouldn't do that. Listen to the Bible. We see also in verse 49 an element of his, perhaps his limited knowledge and limited faith and desire because he says, before my child dies, before my child dies, and in 47, he was at the point of death. So the limitation is what? Did he not believe, could he not believe that Jesus being a prophet of God at the least, that's what he understands now, at the least he's a prophet of God with miraculous powers, could he not raise his child, his son from the dead? Yeah. 
Of course. Did not Elijah do so? Did not Elisha do so? They raised sons, right? Sons from the dead. They raised them from the dead. Could not Christ do the same? Yes, indeed. So he believed that Jesus had power, but he should have believed he had even much more power than he realized. This is often the case with us. We understand God is powerful, but our faith is often so weak that we don't comprehend how much power God actually does have. We don't comprehend how much power God actually does have. After all, who created the universe? Can we not be reminded by the immense power that needed to be exerted to create the universe? That this same God who created the universe can do so for us? Ephesians 3, 20. Ephesians 3, 20. Now to him who is able to do exceeding abundantly beyond all that we ask or think, according to the power that works within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Ephesians 3, 20 to 21. God is able to do exceeding abundantly beyond all that we ask or think. All that we ask or think, God is able to do. This is the way we should ask. We should ask in faith. Have faith in God. Mark eleven twenty two, And we should not be a double-minded man, unstable in all our ways. James 1, 8. Comprehend who we're praying to. We are praying to the God of heaven and earth, God Almighty, and therefore He has power to do whatever He pleases. Verse 50. Verse 50. Jesus said to him, Go your way, your son lives. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him, and he started off. Go your way, your son lives. The official is saying, which may also be an element of his lack of faith, the official was saying, I need you to come to my son. But Jesus does not go to the son miles and miles away. He simply stays there and says, go your way, your son lives. So he sends the father off with the assurance, your son lives. Simply, your son lives. Go your way, your son lives. So Jesus did not oblige to his request to travel with him for that. He was testing him, testing him to see if he would believe. And does he? Verse 50. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and he started off. He believed the word that Jesus spoke. Your son lives. Three simple words that brought about a miracle in the son. Three simple words. And John emphasizes this fact about the son living. In verse 50, your son lives. Verse 51, his son was living. Verse 52, when he began to get better. And then it says, the seventh hour, the fever left him. And then verse 53, your son lives. That Christ by his one word or brief word, your son lives, was able to bring life 
to a body that was about to die, to give that kind of life. That's the kind of word he believed. This royal official, by this point, he at the very least believed in Jesus as a miraculous prophet, in his ability to heal his son. He believed it. And it says he believed it immediately, or practically immediately, because it says the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him, and he started off. And he started off. He didn't say, Jesus, can you give me assurance that everything's okay? He didn't say, well, let me send my bodyguards back or one of my bodyguards back. Let me send him as a runner, a messenger to go find out. And then I'm going to stay here because I really need you to go over there to Capernaum there physically to heal my son. None of that happened. Presumably, it just says he believed and he started off. He immediately believed and he immediately acted on his belief. He believed and he acted. There's no delay. There's no hemming and hawing. Nothing like that. No excuse making. He went, he believed it, and then he acted on it. Yes, this is right. This is true. And he acted. Is this not the nature of true faith? The moment we believe to act on it. Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus in Luke chapter 19. Luke chapter 19, verse 1. Zacchaeus was an unbeliever, and we'll see how immediately he acts on, on, on his belief. Luke 19, verse 1, And he entered and was passing through Jericho, and behold, there was a man by the name of Zacchaeus, and he was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. And he was trying to see who Jesus was, and he was unable because of the crowd, for he was small in stature. And he ran on ahead, and climbed up into a sycamore tree in order to see him, for he was about to pass through that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for today I must stay at your house. And he hurried and came down and received him gladly. And when they saw it, they all began to grumble, saying, He has gone to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my possessions I will give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will give back four times as much. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because he too is the son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Do we not see here immediately? Zacchaeus is eager to see Christ, and when Christ receives him, he immediately announces evidence of his repentance, evidence of his salvation, evidence that he is believing in Christ. It says in 8, Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my possessions, before they get to the house, half of my possessions I will give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will give back four times as much. And Jesus confirms his salvation. He acted upon seeing Christ and the word of Christ. Another place we see an immediate example, Acts chapter 16. Acts chapter 16. Paul and Luke are traveling from city to city. And they came to Philippi. 
And when they came to Philippi, they encountered women at the riverside where they went to pray. And when they encountered these women there, they explained the gospel to them. And verse 14, Acts 16, 14. And a certain woman named Lydia from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening. And the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. And when she and her household had been baptized, she urged us, saying, If you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and say. And she prevailed upon us. She believes. She responds to the gospel message. And then in verse 15, she and her household had been baptized. So the word spreads to her household. And then she urges Paul and Luke, if you have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and stay. Because she urged, she prevailed upon them. So immediate evidence, immediate fruit. If you believe, you're going to obey. No delay. If you believe, then you will obey without delay. Again, based on what? The word that Jesus spoke. We have to believe the word that Jesus spoke. The moment we believe it, we'll obey it. 51. 51. And as he was going down, his slaves met him, saying that his son was living. So he inquired of them the hour when he began to get better. They said, therefore, to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. So the father knew that it was at that hour in which Jesus said to him, your son lives. The slaves of the the official go from Capernaum to Cana, and they meet him part of the way as the official is returning. And they have this conversation. The slaves are reporting that the son is alive. The son is healthy now. And the official is asking, when did that happen? The slaves report the exact time it happened that they saw a change in that sick son. And then the father knew, verse 53, he had confirmation that it was at that very time that Jesus spoke the words, your son lives. Your son lives. So his confirmation, his desire for confirmation, I think is a good thing. I don't think he's skeptical because John doesn't report it in a skeptical way. He, re- he reports it in a way that's confirmational, not skeptical. And therefore, it's right and good also for us to inquire. Is this not what happens if we read the book of Acts time and again in the book of Acts? Is that not what happens that the apostles will go out here and they're preaching the gospel, right? And then they return and they give a report to the disciples at home as to what actually happened. And sometimes it says, and they reported it in great detail, the things that God did among the Gentiles, right? And why? A confirmation, not only to the apostles and the other missionaries, but also to the disciples, those at home in the home church, for them to have a confirmation. This is amazing. This is what God is doing. And they rejoice in that. A confirmation with the facts, with testimonies as to what has happened here and there in other places, coming back home so that we can all together be, in, um, be encouraged in the faith and grow in the knowledge and work together to continue doing the same. That's what happened here. The father 
with his slaves. Now, verse 53 continues. It says, he himself believed, he himself believed, and his whole household. He himself and his whole household. At this point, this official and his household, they exercised true saving faith. Their faith was nourished. The faith was, was uh, watered. But now I think it came to fruition in that this is saving faith. Otherwise, I don't see why John the Apostle would say it again in verse 53. He himself believed and his household. They all believe. And how did this happen? It happened because the father of the household had to explain the incidents, the events, the words, everything that happened with Christ earlier. He had to explain it to his household, right? And after his household heard it, even though they didn't hear it directly from the mouth of Jesus Christ, they believed. Is that not good? Isn't that what we're talking about? Believing the word that Jesus spoke, whether you hear it audibly yourself, which is rare, right? Because it only happened for the main part in the first century and during his three and a half years of ministry. Otherwise, it happens rarely that we hear an audible voice from Christ, such as the prophets did in the Old Testament and other times when the apostles heard or saw a vision of Christ. It happens rarely. Otherwise, we are dependent on what? The word of those who know the Bible and teach the Bible to others. Whether they do that formally in a position in the church or they do it informally as a Christian. A Christian who shares the gospel with someone else. This is how people hear. And when it's heard this way, it is to be commended, right? As Peter said, Peter said, and he commends the people in 1 Peter First Peter chapter 1, verse 8. First Peter 1, 8. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. First Peter 1, 8. Jesus also, he said in John, John 20, 29. John 20, 29. Because you have seen me, have you believed? Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. John 20, 29. Blessed are they who did not see and yet believed. Which includes the vast majority, 99% of all people who ever hear the gospel and believe it. It's because of this word, that the written word or the word that is preached, that people hear and believe. This is to be commended and this is to be emphasized because that is the only means of salvation. Romans 10, 17. So faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. Faith, true faith comes from hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. This is what the father did in his own household. What about our own households? What about our own households and fathers in our own households? Before the, the Christian man, when he is single, should be pursuing truth and righteousness in his own life. Then when that Christian man marries 
a woman, she should be a Christian woman, a godly woman, as far as can be discerned. And then they together, as husband and wife, should be growing in their knowledge together of the word of God. And he should be the teacher, the pastor of his own household, his own marriage. He should be that. And then when they have children, that same father should be teaching the children the truths of Scripture. This should be happening in every Christian household. The father is responsible for teaching his own household. Yes, the church teaches, and they should go to a sound church, no doubt. The church is essential. The church is essential. But in the household where there is 24-7 access to members of the family, that's where it has to happen day by day. Fathers should not renege. Fathers should not um, uh, be derelict in their responsibility to do so for their own family, for their own family's benefit, because it's for their own family's salvation. It's for their salvation. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Correct? And who is the closest neighbor in anybody's family? Your own spouse and your own children from there, right? Your own spouse, Ephesians 5, 28, he who loves his wife loves himself. If we don't teach our own wives, we don't love our own selves. According to the second greatest commandment, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. And if we're not teaching them, we're not loving God. And that's the greatest commandment. If we're breaking the second greatest commandment, we're not obeying the first greatest commandment because the first greatest commandment is to love him and to obey him. If you love me, you will keep my commandments, John 14, 15. And if we're not keeping his commandments by teaching our own households the faith, then we are derelict in duty. We must overcome and must act on this to teach our own households. Now you might say, does the Bible expect us to do so? How about Deuteronomy? Deuteronomy chapter 6. Deuteronomy chapter 6 and verse 4. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verses 4 to 7. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. And you shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. To love God, this is the greatest commandment. How is this love of God first manifested or expected here in this passage? Right there, love, it should be on our heart. And then seven, teach them diligently, not casually, not sporadically, not randomly, not haphazardly, but diligently, carefully, conscientiously, diligently teach your sons and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, when you rise up. He's talking about the normal daily activities of a family that that's what should be on the mind and lips of the father, of the household. Someone might say, that's just the father, not the mother. That's just the father and not the mother. 
Well, let's turn to 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 1. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5. 2 Timothy 1, 5. For I am mindful of the sincere faith within you, which first dwelt in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and I am sure that it is in you as well. The apostles is writing to Timothy, a pastor, and his disciple, right? And he encourages Timothy about the sincere faith Timothy, the young man, the pastor, has. And this faith that Timothy has first was in his grandmother Lois and then his mother Eunice. So what did they do? 2 Timothy chapter 3. How did this faith transfer from grandmother to mother and from mother to son? 2 Timothy 3, 14. 2 Timothy 3, 14 and 15. You, however, continue in the things you have learned and become convinced of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to give you the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. He learned the truths from childhood. He knows from whom he learned them, from grandmother and mother. And it was based on the sacred writings, all scripture in verse 16. The sacred writings are all scripture. It's the Bible. His grandmother and mother taught Timothy from childhood the Bible. That means that the mother and the grandmother had to learn. They had to learn from whom? Hopefully their husbands. In the case of Timothy, probably not his father because the father was a Greek. But had to learn from somewhere, from their own reading, from their attendance at the synagogue, from other believers, from the teachers in the synagogue, right? From the teachers in the church by this point, outside of the synagogue, they had to learn and then teach what they learned there in the corporate setting, in the body of believers, to the family setting. It wasn't just kept in church. It was transferred from church to family. This is the way it happened, even with the mothers and the grandmothers. The Bible expects the parents to do so, parents and grandparents to teach. So what are we going to do? Are we going to be committed Do we love our own spouses enough to do this? Do we love our own children enough to do this? Our own grandchildren enough to do this? Or what do we do whenever we spend time with them? Are we preoccupied in doing things with our families that consume our time, such as hobbies and sports and outings and and movies, stadium? whatever it might be, wherever we might go, is this what we do with them? Is that our preoccupation? Do we have an addiction to those things? And we think, well, if I just spend time with my, with my son hunting, well, if I just spend time with my daughter shopping, then everything's going to be fine. No. Of course, th- there's need to shop. There's need to do some necessities of life. But, and you should and speak of things and bring up things. But what about intentionally, in an organized, systematic way, 
reading the Bible, thinking about the Bible, talking about the Bible, whatever you've been reading, whatever they've been reading, bringing that up in casual conversation as you're going from place to place, as it said in Deuteronomy, when you're walking by the way, right? When you're doing that, but also in the home itself, when you're sitting in the home, have an intentional time of doing that and have a systematic time of doing that. Be deliberate about that. And if we're not teaching our children, we're not truly loving them. And that's not my words. I just cited Ephesians 5.28, Leviticus 19.18. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Who is our closest neighbor? Our own family. And we must do so. According to Ephesians 5.28, our own family. He who loves his wife loves himself. We can't make excuses. I'm too busy. Our schedules are erratic and different. We don't have enough time in the day. There's so much, so many other things that we have to do. We cannot make excuses. No excuses whatsoever. Find a way, overcome all obstacles to be with your family so that they might be saved. He believed and his whole household. That's what we want to happen to us. Verse 54. This is again a second sign that Jesus performed when he had come out of Judea into Galilee. This is the second sign. The first one occurred in Cana of Galilee. The second one occurred here in uh, Cana of Galilee in order to heal. Now, by the way, technically, technically this did not happen in Cana. The word was spoken in Cana, but it happened in Capernaum. And this becomes the introduction to the many, many more miracles that Jesus is going to perform throughout there and wherever he traveled during his ministry. But remember, the, folk, the confirmation of faith may be in a miracle, a confirmation of faith, as it was to the Father. He was confirming the details. A confirmation of faith may be there in a miracle. And a miracle might jolt us, might awaken us, but our confidence needs to be in the word of Christ. The word of Christ. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.